welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. The average North American enjoys a standard of living at present that has been unimaginable for most of history. Yet 40% of the world's inhabitants eke out an existence on less than $2 per day. As North American Christians, our wealth presents us with an enormous responsibility For throughout Scripture, God's people are commanded to show compassion to the poor. This episode presents some foundational principles for building a biblical worldview about poverty and how to alleviate it. for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 5 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Why did Jesus come to earth? Jesus answered this question, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the same chapter, Jesus summarized his ministry I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The mission of Jesus was and is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, saying, I have taken back Adam's kingdom from its slavery to Satan, sin, and death, and I am using my power to fix everything that sin has ruined. The kingdom is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. In Colossians 1.20, Paul describes what Jesus' mission accomplishes. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus died to reconcile, that is, put into right relationship, all that he created. Our mission as Christ followers is rooted in Christ's mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in word and in deed. As the Isaiah 61 prophecy had foretold, Jesus particularly delighted in spreading the good news among the hurting, the weak, and the poor. Hence, God's people have been commanded to follow their king's footsteps into places of brokenness. For his own glory, God has chosen to reveal his kingdom in the places where the world, in all its pride, would least expect it, among the foolish, the weak, the outcasts, the lowly, the despised. And historically, caring for the poor took center stage for expanding the kingdom of Christ. Covenant College professors Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert explain, sociologist Rodney Stark documents that the early church's engagement with suffering people was crucial to its explosive growth. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, and frequent illness and plagues. 
Rather than fleeing these urban cesspools, the early church found its niche there. Stark explains that the concept of self-sacrificial love of others because of God's love for them sharply contrasted with the Roman view of mercy as weakness. He continues, To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. As Christianity spread over the world, caring for the poor and destitute was central to the spread of the gospel. But something tragic happened in America in the 1930s, which has been called the Great Reversal. Bible-believing Christians began to identify caring for the poor and oppressed as the social gospel, in contrast to the true gospel. Christians who cared for the poor were deemed liberals. A sacred and secular split emerged with the liberals failing to grasp man's fallen sinful nature and need of God's grace while focusing more on justice and social change. Thus, the term social gospel came to accurately describe the unbelief of those who denied miracles, the resurrection, and the necessity of the atonement, and the need for individuals to repent and trust Christ. Meanwhile, historically Orthodox Christians stopped leading the way in ministry to the poor. Well, praise God that the rising generation of believers is committed to recovering the church's call to mercy ministry in our day. The Bible-believing church is taking John's admonition more seriously. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. To think about the causes of poverty, let's consider God's design, first of all, for human flourishing. Adam and Eve are designed to be God's image bearers, reflecting his nature as a worker and moral ruler. As workers, the first humans were to follow God's example and develop the potential God built into the physical world, whether it was making spoons or tables or carts. As moral rulers who had the law of God written on their hearts, they were to exercise dominion in a way that pleased God as culture developed and diversified. Human flourishing in God's design was the result of shalom in the four basic relationships of life. First, walking in harmony with God's righteousness, they would have respected private ownership, for example, theft being forbidden by the Eighth Commandment, honest business practices, lying being forbidden in the Ninth Commandment. Second, they would be experiencing pre-fall wholeness, internal peace with themselves, no sense of inferiority, insecurity, or competitiveness, 
or envy. Sinful selfishness has not exerted itself yet pre-fall, so their call to vocation was the call to use their talents, innovation, and resources to make products to serve others. Third, they experienced pre-fall harmony in their horizontal relationships with each other. Their hearts were not governed by greed, selfishness, cheating each other, or jealousy. And fourth, there was harmony in the created order. There was no poverty that had resulted from natural calamity like earthquakes, floods, or volcanoes erupting. The flourishing of the pre-fall garden existed because man was in harmony with the four key relationships of life, his relationship with God, himself, others, and creation. What then is the cause of poverty? Well, due to the comprehensive nature of the fall, every human being is poor in the sense of not experiencing any longer the flourishing of these four relationships in the way God intended. Every human being is suffering from a poverty of spiritual intimacy with God, a poverty of internal wholeness and emotional health within himself, a poverty of community and a poverty of stewardship. Corbett and Fickert illustrate how this combination of deficits leads to financial poverty in the case of Mary, who lived in a slum in East Africa. They write, As a female in a male-dominated society, Mary is subjected to polygamy, to regular verbal and physical abuse from her husband, to fewer years of schooling than males, and to an entire cultural system that tells her that she is inferior. As a result, Mary has a poverty of being and lacks the confidence to look for a job leading her into material poverty. Desperately, Mary decides to be self-employed, but needs a loan to get her business started. Unfortunately, her poverty of community rears its ugly head as the local loan shark exploits Mary demanding a rate of 300% on her loan of $25, contributing to Mary's material poverty. Mary starts a business of selling homemade charcoal in the local market, just like hundreds of others just like her. The market is glutted with charcoal sellers, which keeps the prices very low. But it never even occurs to Mary to sell something else because she does not understand that she has been given the creativity and capacity to have dominion over creation. In other words, her poverty of stewardship locks her into an unprofitable business, further contributing to her material poverty. Then Mary goes to the witch doctor for help, a manifestation of her spiritual poverty. The healer tells Mary that her difficult life is a result of angry ancestral spirits that need to be appeased through the sacrificing of a bull, which further contributes to her material poverty. This understanding of the causes of poverty explains why it is so difficult to eliminate and honestly why God's plan for churches who have a holistic view of life to care for the poor makes so much sense. Let's look at two mistaken understandings of the cause of poverty, whose solutions are actually quite harmful to the poor. 
One approach to alleviating poverty is to claim that income inequality is unjust. Therefore, it must be eliminated to defeat poverty. You might hear this argument as, in America, the richest 1% have 40% of all the wealth. This kind of inequality is unjust. The wealth gap between the upper class and everyone else is almost always framed in terms of inequality and fairness. Let's evaluate this argument. This apparent injustice is based upon the very mistaken idea that the total amount of wealth in a society is fixed, like the size of an apple pie. If someone gets a bigger slice, that means someone else will only get a smaller slice. If there's only so much to go around, the richer Tom is, the poorer Harry is. No one should have more than his fair share. However, that is not how economies work. What if there is a way to make the pie double or triple or quadruple in size? God's design for cultivating the garden so that humans flourish is for mankind to have the economic and political freedom so that humans can work with material resources and understanding of human needs, creativity, legal protections such as private ownership and patents, information, and technology to transform natural resources into products that make life better for everyone. God has gifted and called humans to develop the potential of creation. Often humans do this by transforming things that have little economic value into resources and technologies that have great economic value. Light, for instance, has been turned into lasers, wind turned into electricity, and sand is transformed into fiber optic cables and computer chips. Humans innovate. The late Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, didn't steal iPhones from homeless people. He invented them. And by being free to create and sell them, Steve Jobs created new wealth. Economic and political freedom enabled Steve Jobs to grow rich himself, but that same freedom is what led millions of others to get richer. The pie grew. Steve Jobs getting richer didn't make everyone else poorer. In fact, the wealth he added to the pie provided jobs and economic value to millions of people in the U.S., and around the world. Second, economic inequality is actually often the mark of a truly free society, one that respects the right of every individual to make his own decisions about his gifts and the career he will follow. Because everyone is created in God's image, everyone should be treated equally before the law. But that doesn't mean we are identical or that our efforts produce identical outcomes. Some choose jobs they love that barely pay the bills. Others choose to pursue careers that are risky or boring but lucrative. Others prefer regular work hours that pay less but are stable. A free society allows us to make these different choices. Having the economic and political freedom to choose the career that you want is an enormous benefit because it gives you a greater sense of purpose and satisfaction and even makes life more enjoyable. 
If you do find what you're good at and work really hard to create value for others, you might even achieve new records, create exceptionally beautiful things, greatly enrich others' lives, or make a lot of money. The only way to level economic outcomes would be to deprive people of this freedom. And whenever that's been tried, it hasn't worked. Rather than make everyone equally prosperous, governments who try to force economic equality only succeed in making everyone more equal in their poverty and misery. Third observation about this approach is that focusing on wealth gaps distracts from the real problem of poverty. The problem is not that some people are too wealthy. To make poverty synonymous with income inequality has always failed. The histories of the Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Venezuela make this fact indisputable. The problem is not that some are too rich, but that with so much abundance in the world, so many are still too poor. A second mistaken view about the cause of poverty is the idea that poverty is caused by a lack of material resources. Although there is a place for material support as relief, the urgent and temporary provision of emergency aid to reduce immediate suffering from natural or man-made crises like hurricanes, tsunamis, or government overthrows, long-term poverty is not caused by the lack of material resources. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson launched the War on Poverty in America. In the 50 years since that time, U.S. taxpayers have spent over $22 trillion on anti-poverty programs. Yet according to the Census Bureau, there has been no net progress in reducing poverty since then. The poverty rate has undulated slowly, falling by two or three percentage points during good economic times and rising by a similar amount when the economy slows. It has remained steady, though, between 12 and 15 percent, despite the fact that anti-poverty or welfare spending during that period has simply exploded. These facts point to the reality that there is a difference between caring for the poor and caring for the poor effectively. Marvin Olasky of subsequent World Magazine fame, conducted an exhaustive study of America's welfare system and in 1992 published his findings in a work entitled The Tragedy of American Compassion. Alasky showed that the large, increasingly bureaucratic, secular, impersonal institutions not only failed to eliminate poverty, they often increased poverty by exacerbating its root causes. He argued that for efforts to alleviate poverty to be truly helpful, these three elements are required. First, it must challenge and equip people to participate actively in permanently solving their own problems. Second, it must recognize that poverty is fundamentally not a financial problem. Third, help must be personal and administered in such a way that the inherent dignity of all people is recognized. For humans to truly flourish, personal dignity and relational integrity must be addressed and restored. 
Larry Elder, the executive director of the Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys, also points out that government subsidies don't eliminate poverty. He says the number one issue facing black America is the large number of black kids who are raised without fathers. He then quotes President Barack Obama. Children who grow up without fathers are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Elder asks, why are 70% of black kids raised today without fathers? I argue that there's a connection between this 70% number and our approach to welfare. Our welfare policies have incentivized women to basically marry the government and incentivized men and fathers to abdicate their moral and spiritual responsibilities. The intent of these welfare programs and policies is not in question, but the effectiveness of these policies. Before looking at the more holistic approaches to poverty that Christians and the church can take, It's important to me to say that those engaged in the public government sector to help alleviate poverty and its consequences, especially in our cities, deserve every bit of support we can give them. Praise God for the way they care for those made in God's image who are not being cared for by anyone else. While the biblical worldview requires that we think about the consequences of various policies and recognize that poverty is rooted in other issues like PTSD and bipolar disorders, we must remain grateful for those on the front lines caring for humans being broken by this sinful world. I want to close our time by looking at just one example of this holistic approach to helping the poor. The first chapter of the Christian Women's Job Corps was founded in Nashville in 1995 by the Southern Baptist Convention. Their various programs work with women's personal and spiritual needs, challenging them to participate in their own recovery process. CWJC doesn't offer handouts. Their motto is a hand up, not a hand out. Through GED participation, life and job skills classes, Mentoring and Bible study, CWJC cares for employed but poor women with the goal of helping to transform body, mind, heart, and spirit. To be accepted into their program, women must pass a drug and alcohol test or currently be in recovery. They must attend Bible classes and they must meet with a mentor weekly. Throughout the duration of their involvement, which typically lasts one to two years, they can only miss class three times without a legitimate excuse. In summary, the way to help the poor in the long run is development. It is rooted in the creation belief that God has placed resources in every part of this world and in every one of his image bearers that need to be discovered and developed. From the book, When Helping Hurts. Development is a process of ongoing change that moves all the people involved closer to being in right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. In particular, as the materially poor develop, they are better able to fulfill their calling of glorifying God by working and supporting themselves and their families with the fruits of their work. Development is not done to people or for people, but with people. 
The key dynamic in development is promoting an empowering process in which all the people involved become more of what God created them to be. To summarize this episode, it seems undebatable that the level of wealth that North American Christians have requires us to think through our responsibility to give generously to help the poor, a commitment that the rising generation is concerned about. Being those who care for the poor has in fact been the identity of Christ's church throughout history, with the exception of the church of the 20th century. It is not only the way the church has grown, but a visible expression of the gospel that Christ has come to fix everything broken, including poverty. Not surprisingly, the key to understanding poverty is thinking biblically about God's design for humankind to flourish through the general process of cultivating the earth. That flourishing requires building upon a healthy relationship between man and God, himself, other humans, and the creation. We saw that equating poverty to income inequality is misguided and harmful for the poor, as is understanding the solution to poverty to be merely replenishing material resources. The biblical view is that alleviating poverty happens most thoroughly when we help others overcome the poverty of spiritual intimacy with God, the poverty of internal wholeness and emotional health within himself, the poverty of community and the poverty of stewardship. The only lasting solution to poverty is this developmental approach, which the church is best equipped to help others achieve. For further prayerful thought, number one, what are some of the thoughts that come to your mind as you think about what our responsibility is to the poor since we live at such a high standard of living? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This index link is also in the show notes of every podcast. Next week's message, as we continue our series, Helping Christian Men Build a Biblical Worldview Like David's Men of Valor, is entitled Thinking Biblically About Economics before beginning a brand new series in February entitled Understanding and Meeting the Needs of a Wife's Heart. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about it as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.